think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Hello, you can hear by the music that we are back and we are trying to turn your brain on and get it functioning. So, hi, I'm Michael, and I'm here to tell you that God's people are no better than anybody else. And I mean that. This is one of the fundamental things that we need to know as Christians. We're not better than the pagan world. We simply sin in different directions and we're cognizant of it. Therefore, we repent and trust in Christ daily. Got the coffee going. So I'll be sweating shortly since it's 95 degrees outside and the AC is mostly cooling it off in here. So we'll see what happens there. So we are walking through and continuing walking through. And one of the great benefits of your Old Testament, the uh, one of the true beauties of your Old Testament is the fact that you get a great, consistent example of God's people just absolutely wrecking the place Almost on every page is what it feels like. <laughs> Excuse me. And the Old Testament is replete, as I'm repeating myself, is replete with these examples. And Christian, they are for your good. They demonstrate how gracious God is, and they also demonstrate how broken we is. And yes, I know that's incorrect, and no, I don't care. They point out the salvific work of Christ— and the sustaining work of Christ, which again, part of our foundations is that God is alone Savior and Judge, that He is the Sanctifier, and that He is the Accomplisher who is patient, i.e. long-suffering. So, let's dive in because we are in a shorter book that's going to have some interesting tidbits for us. So we will again gloss through this quickly. Judges chapter 1. It came about after the death of Joshua. So, If you're Israel now, you have lost two earthly leaders back-to-back, your godly men leading you. Now, that shouldn't be a problem for a godly community. Why not? Yes, if you said discipleship, because they are training up and raising up disciples after them who will be able to take up the mantle and lead in godliness, then you would have been correct. If you said something else, go sit in the corner. So Joshua is dead. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us? I'm sorry, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? This is good. We've lost the conduit, basically. So Joshua was in charge. When you needed to find out what you were to do from God, you went to Joshua. Joshua asked God, and and Joshua returned the message. We don't have that, so you're seeing what? Going to God directly. Jude, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I in turn will go into you, go, go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. This is also good. God's people are working together to accomplish the work of God. This is what the community of faith is supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be hating each other and competing with each other. We're supposed to be working together. If we're not working together, there best be a really good reason as to why we aren't and why we can't. And if we don't have said really, really good reason, then that would be a problem. So, Jerusalem is captured, struck with the edge of the sword, the inhabitants, and then the rest of Judges 1 gives you some other cities. So... Debir, now formerly was known as Kirath's affair. Caleb said, the one who attacks Kirath's affair and captures it, I will give, I will 
whoever takes Kiriath's affair and captures it, I will give, I will even give. I, I want to say give even. I will even give him my daughter Aksa. Man, the names will tie you in a knot if you try to skip a word. For a wife. So Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife. Then it came about that when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So there you go. You're seeing this. You have deliverance for the people of God by God. Remember who's doing the accomplishments of battles here. So you see returning of the land to God. Well, not the returning. Of, well, yeah, I guess technically it is returning of the land to God's people, because Abraham was in it, it was promised to him, and now it's being given to the descendants. But we have a problem. Verse 27. Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. And there's a long list. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived there among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. The Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, seeing the recurring theme. I'm not reading all of it. Why is this the case? Multiple reasons. God's glory, human good, man's sin. There you go. How's that for a rundown for you? The Israelites are disobedient. They are not conquering in battle. They are not going in victoriously. And because they are not a faithful people, God is taking this as an opportunity to prepare them, to test them, to establish them and train them. You won't do it yourself. We got some work to do. First chapter two, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I have, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land, which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but will, they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. See the problem? Not walking in faithfulness, not trusting in God. God will discipline and prune his people. You're seeing it in action. So we recount the death of Joshua, and immediately what happens? The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them, thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served the Baal, I'm sorry, and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. Thus begins what is known in uh, Judges as the cycle of apostasy. See, 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 see. <laughs> or as I like to put it when we went through this in Sunday school, this is your journey theology. Because the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. And we don't know where we'll be tomorrow. But the wheel in the sky will keep on turning, meaning Israel is going to continue to sin. God is going to judge. Now, here's the beauty of this. The people are going to recognize this problem, return to God in repentance and faith. God is going to raise up a deliverer for them. They shall be rescued because of the mighty works of God and his deliverer. And then the people will sin again, return to judgment, return to discipline, and then you will see the cycle start up again. So, the Lord raised up judges 
who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. Sometimes that's a good idea. For they played the harlot with other, after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly. In other words, here you go. Now, understand this. What precisely has changed since the Exodus? I'll wait. Because the answer is really easy. It's nothing. They whined and complained. They were afraid of Pharaoh. They worried about the Red Sea. They worried about the food. They worried about the water. They worried about everything. They had almost less than no faith, which is a neat accomplishment. This is not a new thing. This is a continuation of who the people of Israel are. This is them in their sins. That's hence chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war those who had not experienced it formerly. So Israel's sin has led to a bad thing. They have the foreign nations occupying the land around them. God is using that to a good end. He will use it as a teaching tool. You will learn how to defend yourselves, to defend your nation, to operate in the midst of sin, pagan idolatry, blasphemous worship, and everything else under the sun. And when it came to Canaanite religion, there literally was everything else under the sun. You're talking about uh, ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, marriage rituals, I mean, mutilations of the body, I mean, sacrifice of animals, I mean, torture, I, you name it. It was there in Canaanite religions in some shape, form, or fashion. That explains some of the weirder stuff you'll see in Leviticus. Like, don't do that. Why would I even think about doing that? Well, because the Canaanites do it, and they're going to be idolaters in front of you, and you're going to want to follow after them. Hence the commands in Leviticus about, you know, no bestiality, no intermarrying, because that was part of Canaanite religion and worship. Can't imagine why God would command Joshua and the crew to wipe those people out, can you? No, not in the least. So, they have the people living among them. You've got Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, you name it, they're there. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Now there's a name right there, Cushan Rishathaim. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, by the way, notice the timelines here. We, um, I may not read all of these, but Read Judges, all of it. It will do you good. You can read it probably in less than a half an hour sitting at your house this afternoon. It will be good for you. And notice the frame here. Judges covers hundreds of years. This is not just little pockets here and there. This is generation upon generation upon generations of sin, idolatry, turning from God, judgment, redemption, apostasy, discipleship, failure, idolatry. I mean, it's just years because God is patient and he is preserving and upholding his people and he is preserving and upholding the idolatrous nations around them to test them, prune them, and judge them. This is one of the examples you get out of your Old Testament. So when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. I think they just keep putting it in there, so I have to keep saying it. That's, I'm, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Then the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. So you just skipped forward 48 years in your narrative. Eight years of servitude, 40 years of peace after Othniel. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went out and defeated Israel and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon. This is, one, this is an awesome story. We'll read this one. The, to the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length. That's about a foot and a half. So not really a sword, more like a machete. Well, I guess uh, it wouldn't be a rapier because that would be a thinner blade. So yeah, this would be about machete length. He, uh, he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. See, right leg, because he's left-handed. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. No, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended kept him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message for God, from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. <laughs> And then Ehud went into the vestibule and shut the doors and the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So Eglon was so uh, rotund that the knife just kind of split his guts and went in and stayed there, handle and all. Which, if you're Ehud, kind of helps you out with your escape. So Ehud makes a break for it, and they, the attendants wait because they just assume Eglon, since he's a rather fat man, is taking a while in the restroom. And he is going to take a while, a really, really long while. So Ehud escaped, they struck down, blah, blah, blah. Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So zing, pow, zoom, 100 years. We just fast-forwarded. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox code. He also saved Israel. Then you're going to get to Deborah and Barak. For everybody who wants to tell me Deborah is proof of egalitarianism, read Judges 4. It will do you good. Deborah's a prophetess. She is, her included as a judge is punishment. The judge was supposed to be Barak, the man who would lead the army. Barak goes, I'm scared. I want the woman to go into battle with me. Therefore, he doesn't get the glory. Jael gets the glory. Notice Deborah doesn't get the glory either. It is Jael in her tent as Sisera makes a run for it, takes a nap, gets some milk, and she drives a tent peg through his head. Do not mess with Jael. Apparently, she has a mighty right hand as well. So, you get the praise song of Judges 5, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Are you doing the math at home? Because I am not. But you notice we're covering lots of ground. We're closing in a couple hundred years already. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites 
would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far, far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for a number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. So in other words, those strongholds that David is hiding out in in 1 Samuel are built because the Israelites are running for their lives from the Midianites. Should the Israelites have to be building strongholds in the caves and in the wilderness? And the answer to that is no. They should be able to stand and fight in faithfulness. And the God of Israel who protects them and oversees them will deliver them from the hand of their enemies and fight for them. But they can't do that because they're being sinful little rats. Therefore, they can't call upon God. They don't call upon God and they get conquered. And rather than call upon God, they go build strongholds for them. So in their sin, they build some you know, some forts, basically, and God uses those forts to protect his godly anointed king later on. Once again, the precision of God, one of our foundations at hand in judging, saving, and sanctifying. David will be an instrument of salvation for Israel. Saul will be an instrument of judgment David will also be sanctified by his time in the wilderness. He will be pruned and refined, and you'll see that in his life. But all of that comes about because of the gross sin of Israel and God using that sin to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't command them to sin. He allows it and then works in the midst of it, accomplishing his good purposes. Now, this is an unintentional comedy alert, one of my favorite Bible verses. This is, um, this is probably top ten. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirazite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. All right, so if you're threshing, you're beating out the wheat, you are removing the wheat from the chaff. You would typically like to do this out in an open field, up on a hillside, so that the wind will aid in this process. Down in the winepress is out of the wind and out of sight. You're doing this job there, doing this job there makes it harder to do this job. You're doing it like this because you're terrified of the Midianites. Basically, you're hiding. You're not willing to fight for it or you don't want to fight for it. Look, I can't say I blame Gideon there, but this just shows God has some humor. The angel of the Lord, here Jesus, appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. <laughs> yeah, the dude hiding for his life and hiding the wheat is the valiant warrior. You know Gideon had to look around and be like, Who? Where? What's his name? How can, I help? How can he help? Now, there's two lessons here. That's one. God has a sense of humor. But two, Gideon without God is a coward. Gideon with God is a valiant warrior. What made the difference? The answer is the power and command and promise of God. Christian, we're not better than these people. We have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that smacks us in the back of the head like Gibbs on NCIS and tells us, hey, don't do that. And when we listen to that voice, things go well with us. When we don't, they don't. So the army is shrunk. Well, hang on. Gideon wants some signs. He gets them. His army is shrunk. He gets over 20,000 people showing up for battle, ends up going in with 300. Because again, why? Because if you go in and conquer with 30,000 soldiers, who's going to take the credit? Like, we haven't seen this in Israel before. Exactly, Israel would. Instead, God fights, fights for them, Judges 7, and the 300 are not credited. God is credited. It's his work. So the men of Ephraim said, What is this you have done to us, not calling when you went to fight against Midian? 
Yeah, because Israel's got such a great track record of accomplishing things. And they contended with him vigorously, but he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands, and what I was able to do in comparison with you. And their anger toward him subsided when he said that. In other words, ooh, you kissed our butt, you patted us on the head, and told us we did a good job, and we were better fighters than you were, so we're happy. Meaning, the sin in Israel is deep, 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 deep. The lies of Israel are deep, 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 deep. The problems in Israel are legion, legion. Hey. Somehow or another, I have water on my desk, and I don't know where it came from. Let me put a towel over that. Sorry, don't ask me where that came from or why we're talking about that now, but we are, so there you go. So you get continued civil war in Israel. You get Gideon making an ephod and... Israel engaging in idolatry because of it, which, again, is not good on Gideon because Gideon's not a priest. It's not his job to make the ephod. It's not his job to offer sacrifice. It's not his job to lead in worship. That's what the Levites are for. Now, maybe you could say, well, Gideon did it because they weren't doing it. That's fine. Still not an excuse for Gideon to do it. Gideon's got no right. Gideon's got no business. He's not supposed to. He's not commanded. Once again, showing the problems in Israel. Just because it's not, just because somebody else isn't doing their job means you need to do their job for them. Do what God has called you to do. Walk in faithfulness. Be sanctified and let the just judge of all the earth deal with these things. So Midian is subdued. We have peace for 40 years. Then you start getting some conspiracies from the children and through the children. So Gideon's family gets basically wiped out. You get more civil war. So Abimelech died. Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, gotta love these names, a man of Issachar arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Gotta love that. Ephraim, not a good place. We just saw that with Gideon. But go down a few generations, and there are still faithful people in Ephraim, enough that we can raise up a judge. So always realize when we talk about the sin of Israel, we're talking about this in generalities. Just like when we say that you know the United States was founded on Christian principles. Does that mean every single person in the United States was a Christian with a biblical worldview? No. It means the overarching principles of our government that were agreed upon were Christian in nature. Likewise, when we say we live in a pagan nation, because that's what the United States is, is a pagan nation. For those of you who aren't aware of that, the United States is a pagan nation. Trust me, I've lived here my whole life. Does that mean every single solitary person in the United States is a pagan? The answer is, well, no, because I'm not a pagan and I live here, so there you go. I, I'm bucking the trend. But it does mean on the whole. Same thing with Israel. When we talk about a faithless Israel, we are talking about the whole. Are there a remnant? Or is there a remnant? Yeah. Are there remnants? There you go. The answer is, of course there are. This is part of what's going on, is that the precision of God will not allow him to not have a testimony, will not allow him to not have a witness. He will sanctify and bless his people, even in the midst of judgment, which should be good news. So, you've had Tola, you'll get Elon and Abdon, Jephthah, who is just, ugh. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. I love that. He's a good guy, but you know his mother's a hooker. I mean, come on. How do you hold that against the man? Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they drove Jephthah out and said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house. Once again, got to love these gracious, loving, compassionate Israelites, you know, keepers of the law, Blessings to the sojourner and the alien and the downtrodden of the land. Don't you just love these, you know, godly people doing godly things in godly ways? Because they're not, are they? 
not even a little bit. So, so again, I think the water bottle that got left here is what's leaking. Sorry, I know it has nothing to do with anything. So Jephthah's raised up. He goes in, makes a stupid vow that he unfortunately fulfills. And yes, I am one of those. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. She doesn't go off to live as a pure temple attendant or whatever the garbage story is. Well, that means one of the, uh, one of the leaders of Israel sacrificed his own daughter in clear contradiction of the commands of God. Yes. Yes, it does. Because these people are broken and pagan at heart, rather than redeemed and being sanctified in totality. Just like you saw with Barak, just like you saw with Gideon, you're seeing the evil fruits of sin infect and infest a nation. So what is supposed to be a godly, sanctified nation is becoming a pagan nation with godly, sanctified people within it. So he said, Gideon and Tola, Jair and Jephthah, who can, who can forget about Isvan or Elon and Abnon. So I got out of order. And so you get more. There's not really a whole lot about them. There you go. I just summarized it. You get more oppression from the Philistines, 40 years. Manoah and his wife have a son named Samson. Dun, da, da, da. This is the guy you know, the last one of the book of Judges, not the last judge. Uh, technically, the last judge of Israel would be Samuel, but the last of this book. Samson's an interesting story. He's a Nazarite, so if you want to have some fun, go back to uh, number six, I believe. Read if number six, number seven, somewhere there. Read the book of Numbers; it'll do you good. You'll see the uh, the Nazarite vow, not Nazar, not Nazarene, Nazarite. There's a difference, not from Nazareth. And notice the notice the conditions that are there, and then go back and read the life of Samson with those conditions in mind. Because we always ask this question of the of people who have grown up in church. Because ask them where did God, where did Samson's strength come from, and they go, oh, it was in his hair. No, it wasn't. It was in his God. The hair was simply the last straw. Samson systematically violated every single part of his covenant with God. Every single part. I mean, not some of it, all of it. When that happens for the Nazarite, what he is supposed to do is shave his head and be, purify himself and begin again. Samson never does that, so God does it for him by having the Philistines shave his head and set him aside so that he can then return to God in repentance and faith. It has nothing to do with hair being the power. It has everything to do with God being the power. And that's what you'll see when you get to the end, is why does Samson get his strength back? The hair grows, but his strength doesn't return. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two mid middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. And the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed in his life. Thus he judged Israel 20 years. Gotta love it. God grants him the power back. Not his hair, God does. And then you get the tragic story of Micah, the priest, the idolatry, and the sin of Israel. So you get the faithless priest who comes into Ephraim, or I'm sorry, from Ephraim, goes into Bethlehem of Judah, the family of Judah. He's a Levite, and he's staying there, and the man departed from the city to stay, blah, 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 blah. So he gets hired on as priest. Problem here. You don't hire on priests. 
That's idolatry. That's paganism to its core. The Danites come rolling along, and they're like, hey, what's better, dude, for a family to pay you or a whole tribe? And the answer is, well, hey, it's like, it's like, these pa- it's like pastors. Like, hey, I had to ch- start out with a church at a seminary. You know, I had like 10, 12 people in it. And after I was there for a couple of years, I got hired by a church down the street. They had 40 or 50 people in it. And then after a couple of years there, I got hired on by a bigger church as a youth as an associate, but that church had like 150 people in it. And I was there for a couple of years, and then I got hired on by a church with like 100, 125 people in it as pastor, and they just keep moving up the ladder. It's like a succession chain. You know, it's like the minor leagues feeding the majors here. That's not how this is supposed to work, and that's kind of what the Danites are doing here. So what ends up happening? Well, they take the priests, they take the idols, and they move along. Why is that story there? Ritual worship in Israel has been degraded. The core of how Israel is supposed to relate to Yahweh, the core of how they are supposed to relate in sacrifice, in prayers, and in offerings has been undermined and corrupted. These people are not good. That's why it's in here. When we talk about the long-suffering nature of God, this is what we're talking about. Him blessing these people, working in the midst of their nation, bringing them prophets, raising up judges, providing them with kings to lead them and to protect them when they don't deserve a bit of it. That's why this matters. And then you get the story of the Levite and his concubine, which is a hearkening back to what happened with, um, brain just froze, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's lots, um, family. So the Levite's traveling, and he stops in a city, and he gets picked up. You know, well, I, don't, I shouldn't say it like that. He's not picked up, but he gets invited in by an elderly gentleman who probably knows how bad the town is, and they want to rape the man. And the owner of the house refuses, offers some daughters, and the guy finally shoves the concubine out, and the men of the city rape her all night. Literally just rape her to death. And his response is to go home with the dead body, cut it up in pieces, and send it off to all the corners of Israel. Be like, how dare these people rape my concubine to death? What is wrong with them? So they come out and basically wipe out a tribe. And then to make up for wiping out a tribe, they rob another city of its women so that the tribe won't be wiped out. Yeah, that's, that's a good plan, guys. Good, good, good plan. So we save Benjamin by stealing women from another city, which that'll come up later. It's Jabesh Gilead. You ever wonder why when things happen for Saul, it is what it is. We'll cover that when we get to it. And you're going, so we got priests living with concubines. We've got carving up dead bodies. We've got faithless priests. We've got priests for hire. We've got gang rapes of women. We've got wiping out of tribes. We've got stealing of women. Name me something on the list here that we aren't doing. We're lying. We're stealing. We're cheating. We're killing. We're adulterating. If that's not a word, it is now. I mean, are we just trying to break all the commandments in one in one chapter? Because it looks like that's what we're doing. And the answer is yes, that's exactly what Israel's doing. They're trying to break all the, tra- all the commandments in one go. And that is why Saul is the king that he is, because God is judge, and he will not allow this to continue. He will not allow his people to walk in this way and to continue to degrade his nation. Now, are there faithful people in Israel? Yes, and God will save them, and God will sanctify them, and God will fulfill all of the promises he has given to them. But he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And that is part of the example that you see in the nation once the kingdom years come in. Because unfortunately, it doesn't get any better. So what have we learned here today, children? 
God's people are not good. God will, however, God will not forget his people, and the grace of God is always, always, always on display. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info, uh, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Be glad to listen to them. Be glad to hear. If you have story suggestions for anything else we do, send them. We'll be glad. Uh, we'll keep going with this series. The plan is to finish up our SBC rundown and continue on with all the fun that we do, so we appreciate you guys. Uh, give us good reviews. Share with your friends and neighbors. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.